0: podcast. This is James Scullin from the Australia-China Business Council. If you've been enjoying our podcast over the last 30 episodes, please pass on an episode to a friend, colleague or client and give us a rating on the iTunes App Store or wherever you listen to podcasts. On this episode, we take a look at the current level of Australia's Chinese language proficiency or rather the lack of it and look at what needs to be done to encourage a greater take up of Mandarin with those from a non-Chinese background across schools, business and society in general. I speak with Dr Jane Orton from the University of Melbourne on why the current number of Australian Chinese speakers from a non-Chinese background is so low and what needs to be done to encourage greater take up. We look at whether other countries around the world are doing any better in learning Chinese, how a working level proficiency of Chinese can positively impact a business and what language learners can do to learn Chinese more efficiently and take their language skills to the next level. Dr Jane Orton is an honorary fellow at the University of Melbourne where she was director of the Chinese Teacher Training Center, a national research and professional development center for Chinese language teaching in Australia from 2009 to 2015, and where prior to that she coordinated modern languages education for 15 years. Jane has researched and published widely in the learning of Chinese as a second language, in Chinese teacher education, and in intercultural relationships between Australians and Chinese in workplace settings. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm here today with Dr. Jane Orton from the University of Melbourne. Jane, thanks a lot for dropping by to the podcast.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Australia is obviously so closely engaged economically with China these days with significant people-to-people links at all walks of life. How does Australia's current level of Chinese language proficiency stand up t- t- to match that engagement that's so high?
1: Well, I would say it, no, it doesn't stand up. In fact, it barely sits up. <laughs> um it's It's very, very much um, plateaued at a certain level, and this is in part and large part because there's this real block at year twelve. The Chinese as a second language got swamped by these kids who were not, in fact, second language speakers, they had spoken Chinese, have spoken Chinese since they were babies, when they were first born, home language. Mm. And many of them have also been educated at Saturday school, so they're quite literate. These people exist in French and German and Japanese too, but there are only a few of them. In Chinese, there are 800 out of 920. So that, of course, they just absolutely take every single A-plus going, because that's done on a percentage. OK. You really, and you can't. There's no way you could learn Chinese in a classroom to compete with a home speaker. Uh, and I have fought this tooth and nail to say that they are not L2 learners, they're not second language learners. Chinese is not their second language. In fact, it's their first, even though they weren't brought up in China. Mm. And there should be a provision for them. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm all for them learning Chinese and being well-educated in their language for their own sake as well as for the national interest. But they're standing, as it were, standing on the faces of these classroom mm. kids, and they've just squeezed them out, and so they've started to drop out. In 2008... I estimated there were about uh, 500 of those, and it was down to 400 um, less than 10 years later. So we're actually losing the Year 12s. And that's that's to say, the Anglo or non-Chinese. And they're not necessarily Anglo; they could be Indian heritage or anywhere, but non-Chinese.
0: So is there just the one stream in in Year 12
1: at the moment? There's the t- no there's a three there are three. The top stream is for the international students who really a- are Chinese who right. grew up and were educated in China and um, until they're about 16, 15, 16 they come out here. Yeah. And then there is the uh, classroom learners. There is also an advanced classroom learner group, but the the regulations have not to do with language. They're to do with residency. Now, they say if you have been and lived in China for more than three years, you've got to do this more advanced level. It's not terribly more advanced, I might add, but it is a separate group. Okay. But the problem is, as a baby, it doesn't matter if you live in Beijing or Brighton or Bondi. Mm. It's the language of home. Mm. You know, it's not the language... You don't get out in the street... It really doesn't matter where you was, were for your first three years. It's what was going on around you mm. in your own home. Right. But they won't do that. I have spoken to the minister. I've had the commissioner for uh, Equal Ops, uh, who wrote a, a mere wonderful memo, which I published in 2016, saying it's not discriminatory to say that those kids shouldn't be in the same group. Mm. Um, but the Victorian minister said that they were advised that they might, might lose, and so they're not prepared to run it in court. West Australia did let it run in court and they won. The, 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 they were allowed to, to, to separate the groups. New South <laughs> Wales separates the groups on the basis of proficiency, not on, uh, on the basis of residency. And,
0: and do we see greater uptake from um, non-Chinese background in those Mandarin states. learners in those states as In a Western
1: Australia, of course, it's very small. The whole thing is small. Yeah. But it's certainly... They're they hanging in there. In New South Wales, it, it, they've got very different regulations. You don't have to do a, more than 100 hours of language in the whole of your secondary year, so they've got very low enrollments in language, period. OK. But, but, but the answer is yes. Once that happened, the, the, the absolute drop in Chinese turned and Mm. it's increased by about 50% within three years. So it's a significant change, although the overall numbers are still small because language numbers are small. Language numbers are small in all languages. Uh, We're we're pretty monolingual. Uh, There are only about 12% of Year 12 students in the whole country that take a language. Mm. And of those, Chinese is... Less than was about 1.2%. Most of them are Chinese. But, but why is the interest so low? Is well, it, because is... you can't go through... I mean, a lo- yeah. a lo- the schools, the old Penny Nessenden Grammar, the Pioneer, uh, Campbellwell Grammar School, Caulfield Grammar School, mm-hmm. Leeds Group, Victoria, and Melbourne Grammar School, the, the Pioneer schools in Victoria with the strong programs, they mm. literally advise their kids not to do it in Year 12, mm. which is just... Really? ...heartbreaking and pathetic... And, of course, a lot of the kids who do do it, then their little brothers or sisters say, well, why bother starting if you're not going to be able to finish? So they go off and they do Latin, for heaven's sake, or Japanese or dear old French.
0: And so is this a particular problem with
1: with Chinese?
0: Do we see this in, like, Greek and Italian?
1: And the Chinese parents fight it tooth and nail, and they would sue, and they did sue in in Western Australia, and they took it all the way to the Supreme Court in Western Australia. But they, they lost at every point, and they just kept upping it. But they still lost on the saying that it was discriminatory. Mm. The real problem is also that of course in these in other languages that you do get if you made a rule you have to make a rule for everybody for all, you know for the French and the Italians and everybody else. Yeah. The problem with the other languages is that there are so few kids who really are like that. Right. They really don't matter. You know if they if they all get a plus it's, there's still heaps of a plus spots left. Okay. for the genuine learner. So so that it's the it's the volume that really makes the difference, mm. rather than the actual proficiency. Okay. And that parents are always saying to me, but, but oh, the, you know, the teacher of mathematics children do better in mathematics and it's their advantage and, they, you know... And, but they want, of course, the the, the kids to have high atta, get into something, and so they bite tooth and nail for it. At last
0: year's ACBC Canberra Networking Day, the Shadow Treasurer Chris Bowen claimed that there are just 300 Australian Chinese speakers from a non-Chinese background in Australia. Does that number sound right to you, that there's
1: 300 Chinese speakers from a non-Chinese background? There are a couple of things there. I said this in my report, and that the number I used was 130, and that was already inflated. A couple of, About three years ago, Professor Danny Cain from Macquarie University wrote um, and said he'd been adding up, and he thought there, w- there weren't, wouldn't be 100 people uh Australian, non-Chinese Australians, who spoke good Chinese. Mm. Now, what you do need, first of all, we're talking about a proficiency level that would be, say, sufficient to, to function in your job. Mm. You could teach a class in it, if that's what you do, or give a lecture, you could run a meeting, you could read your legal documents, whatever, yep. any and all of those, in exactly the same ways that if you employed somebody in an office here who was from Germany or France or Japan and they said they spoke English, well, you'd expect them to be able to, you know, cope all-roundedly in English. Sure, there might be occasions when they Mm. slip up or didn't understand something, but generally. So we're talking at quite a high level and we're talking reading and writing as well as speaking and listening. So that's one thing. We had a reunion and there were people from all, uh, all states. And, of course, the China world is really very small. We academics all know each other, so we counted them up. Um, I know all the all the non-Chinese school teachers in Australia, mm. so we counted them up. Danny had been in the um, DFAT in Beijing, so he knew all of. The, and I'd been in the Australia-China Business Council and also interviewing. In, in, you'd have to come through the schools. You'd have to come through a university. We'd know you. You know, somewhere we'd have met you by then. And so we added up, and we got to 105. Okay, and in even those, some of those, we didn't think their Chinese was all that really all that good, but at least um, okay. But we said, well, maybe there are people in the woodwork we've never heard of. Maybe there are a few. So I inflated it to one hundred and thirty. But I, you know, I couldn't believe that there'd be twenty-five people with really good Chinese that none of us. Had ever met and was an Australian, you know. I mean, it's just, you'd have to meet them somewhere. I talked to Chris Bowers' office and I think, and I told them that. So I said, it's a very well informed, informal figure. Okay. Nobody's ever counted. I said, you could double it and you'd, you know, you'd be, it's just impossible that there would be those people there because we would know them. But it's still, anyway, so, so few people.
0: What about people who have a Chinese partner or people who have lived in China for, for mm, six or seven years not. and moved back? Yeah.
1: Okay. Very, some of them can, what I'd say, smatter. They can, they can be courteous. Sort of, you know, they can do how-do-you-do's. They can get themselves a meal in the restaurant. They can get a taxi. Right. But um, is that, is that but proficiency? They, they can't read and write very fast. The you know, University of Melbourne was thinking about having... You know, offering some courses in Chinese that would allow people to both keep moving with their Chinese and learn something useful while they're mm. doing it in, say, s- social studies or something, science or something like that. And I said, well, it's no use, because year twelves, uh, if they pass it, they mm. couldn't read and write fast enough to... You know, you, you couldn't credit it as a university-level study mm. if they can't read and write it fast enough. Mm. The fact is that year 12, reading and writing in Victoria, which is the language of state in, Victoria, in Australia, is grade one. In Hong Kong, China, and Taiwan, year twelve, right, five hundred characters. Okay, and and every all those China societies kids learn that in grade one. Right. Okay. They graduate in China with six thousand characters. All the primary schools are out with three thousand. Finish primary with three thousand. Now, you know, there's no other language if you even Japanese for that matter, because you only need because you can use uh, Hiragana, but in German or Italian or something, they're reading newspaper articles in Year 12 sure. that were written for ordinary... I mean, they literally genuinely come out of Italian or German newspapers. You know, yeah. They're about pollution or about whatever social issues there are. Yeah. So do you think
0: maybe Australians are just lousy language learners? Do you think that that's There's that, some that more issues. Uh,
1: Chinese is a much more expensive language for any of us. And this is true across the world. It's not... of the European world in particular. Mm. The demands on somebody who is a competent European language user are really quite extensive. They're very fundamental. You've really got to go back to kinder and pre-kinder. It does take longer. There is is more to learn. There are no cognates. No... I mean, if you speak French, science and science and reaction, chimique and all these things, you know, they're, they're really particularly if you see them written down, a very, very similar word. You get an awful lot of dividend yep. from your original language. But also the basic grammar is the same, even though the word order is different. You know. There are lots and lots of um, free rides for us in another European language, and even, funnily enough, in Japanese and Indonesian, because there are a lot they, they have brought into their modern language, mm. a lot just brought in foreign words. So there are the linguistic demands. And the other thing is it's not very well taught. Mm. And um, that's mostly because the teaching of Chinese is in the hands of native speakers, and this was true of ESL, English as a Second Language, early on when we, you know we didn't understand our own language from a learner's perspective. We knew how to speak it, and so we got out there, and, mm. and eventually they said, "Look, you know, this is not how we can learn that. You know, we learn it differently. Those aren't the challenges. This is what's difficult for us." And so Chinese have yet to engage with. The foreign community about the learning of Chinese. They're very, very much from Hanban right through to your ordinary primary school teachers. Sure, that because they speak beautiful Chinese that they know how to teach mm. it. And the evidence is that they don't.
0: So would you say that Chinese is, is, is more of a teacher-focused type of learning where learning ESL is more, more student-focused to, and well, interactive?
1: one of the key stories I always tell is of, of a student who said to me, you know, when I... She was living up near the University of Melbourne, and she said, you know, when I... When I leave in the morning, my next-door neighbour is taking her eight-year-old son to school. And I often walk with them. And at the school gate, the mother kisses her son goodbye. Uh, In China, a a Chinese mother would say, now study hard and obey your teacher. But at the gate, my neighbour kisses her son goodbye and says, have a good day. Mm. And then my student said to me, she was a postgrad from Shanghai, like she wasn't from the sticks, she said, I don't know what she means. What would happen if he has a good day <laughs> or if he doesn't? I have no idea. Right. And, uh, you know, and I have asked a lot of Chinese teachers, what would a kid, an eight-year-old kid having a good day be about? The one thing they never ever say, which is the one thing that my student then went on to research among Australian parents and discovered that the number one thing would be that it, it would be interesting. Yeah. It's not a word that exists in Chinese education. Right. Okay. uh, Curiosity and interest are not part of the deal. Okay. And so the teacher just stands up and and spiels and the kids have got to get themselves there and you go home and learn it by heart. And that is that is their fundamental way of learning. We don't memorize anything and memorizing is a a skill, you get better at it. And if you've never done it, you're not very good at it. What, what... I spend a lot of time working with teachers and one-on-one and consulting, and mm. the biggest job is to get them... When a child says something wrong, they correct the language. Mm. And I say, no, don't correct the language, mm. correct the child. Mm. Why did the child make the error? Get that fixed. And then the kid can say it perfectly. Mm. But instead, they always... They just take over and say it perfectly, model it. And the idea... And the unexamined but underlying... Uh, learning theory is that somehow hearing the correct thing yet again by me will somehow do something for you. It doesn't doesn't work like that.
0: Um, Is there a country in the world that we could look to as maybe best practice
1: who have, (laughs) have taken up Chinese as a foreign language? We were very early in the piece. We're actually leaders in many respects. These problems I'm talking about are just as true In Europe, uh, you hear exactly the same things, both within the universities and within um, secondary and primary schools. So at the school level, there really isn't anybody who does terribly well as a nation or as as a bunch of people. Thailand, South Korea, and actually Vietnam as well these days, but particularly the Thais and the Koreans... And the Indians are starting as well. You know, had a good, solid look at the map and read their newspapers and decided they bet somebody better know Chinese and know it well and understand China. Mm. They have poured money, all of those places, in, okay. t- in sending and teaching Chinese to their... Essentially, the young professional work, working class. You know, I mean, it's your banking staff and your insurance company staff and your law staff and your trading company staff. And then they send them to China mm. and they pay for them to, to do intensive study courses. There's very high incentive. When you come home, you'll be expected to use it, be allowed to use it, be helped to use it. Um, and your pay will go up or you'll have, you know, your, your security and your job will increase. So high incentives. Mm. Um, none of that's got anything to do with actual language learning itself. Mandarin centers in China are mm. full of people, particularly Koreans and Thai's. Now nobody there's no incentive, almost no incentive here there's the sort of the new Colombo plan will send you for three months, but you can go as a beginner well you, you know what are you going to do for as a beginner after three months you know, I think you'll find it interesting, perhaps, but you 're not going to get far. Mm. It's a it's a long-term process. But come back, nobody could c- care less. It's not an any-job thing. If you go for a job, they say, well, can you speak Chinese? You say, well, I'm learning. Mm. But if you can't, you know, if you can't translate the document or r- do the interpreting yet, right. nobody's interested in you. Anyway, they're usually, they all speak English and we don't need them. That's right, isn't it? So, so how much time do you think a language learner needs to spend in China, if, you, if three months isn't enough? People are different, and it depends on how intensive, but it depends on what sort of opportunities you get to actually use it. One of the things in China in particular, is often hard, is to get the sort of opportunities that are best for language learners, which are where you're immersed in the language. Without the intense pressure to keep using it yourself, where you get a chance to actually sort of watch people use the language and listen, mm. and sort of try out a bit, and then well, that's a success. Try it out again the next time, and uh, so work uh, internship working in places is very good. You know, some place where you can actually be with people. Okay.
0: Yeah.
1: Taiwan is easier for that. It's there, there's a lot more. It's a lot easier to mix with Chinese speakers in Taiwan, and they're pretty low key about it and happy. So the German the Germans spend a lot of send a lot of their people to Taiwan and I have to say I think that on the whole for non-Chinese there are more there are better Chinese speakers in Germany than anywhere I've ever met mm, right you know yeah, even they, they, they have to work at it but and I think it's because they um, they go to, to Taiwan what type of cost do you think this has on Australia so looking at it from like a
0: business standpoint do you, do you think Australia suffers with its highly China engaged industries such as tourism investment exporting or international this, education. You know, is
1: not my area of expertise, but it is very clear. I know it's in um, the hospitality in terms of places like motels, you know, that some people I knew who had a little notice that said, I'm sorry we don't speak your language, but, you know, here are some of the things, and they had them translated. Well, word of mouth, word of mouth, I mean, this is the place to say They felt welcome. Right, OK. They felt understood, <laughs> even though, was, you know, there was a limited amount of information, but the basics were there. Yeah. And so they felt, you know, liberated and, and they could go off and do certain things according to these instructions. And they, they quite like doing it without having a Chinese guide all the time, you know. They, they've got some spirit of adventure too. But, so I think there's that. When, when, when businesses
0: use interpreters to communicate in Chinese, what do you think is lost not having
1: a, a direct form of communication? Well, anything genuinely personal. I mean, jokes and and things like that are a disaster usually. The the interpreter usually doesn't get it. They often leave things out. They not infrequently get things wrong. The other is that it stops there being a good relationship. It's very difficult to build a relationship unless your interpreter happens, you know, you've got the one person and you train them and you feel that they understand it. The other thing is that interpreters, they don't have your experience, right? They don't, have, they don't know what you know. Mm. They don't know necessarily if they're Chinese, as they probably will be. They don't know, they don't know what will interest you. Mm. So they, never, they don't think to tell you X because they had no idea it was going to interest you. There is one advantage in negotiating where interpreting gives you that bit of space to just watch the person getting the news right. and to think twice and to think a bit harder But that's a very special kind of tight negotiation. Language is is in the end, it's not about translating, it's about relating. Mm. It's about creating a relationship. And in it's third person standing in the way is cumbersome. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, one of Australia's most prominent Chinese language learners um, has to be former PM Kevin <laughs> Rudd. Oh. I remember being in China a number of years ago and, you know, whenever a Chinese person would ask where you come from, you would hear a lot of lucoans. Yeah. What effect do you think having a Chinese-speaking leader has had in China?
1: I think people were incredibly impressed. And they felt relieved, and I felt a certain pride. I think they felt, you know, that this was going to be the coming thing, that that it wouldn't always be English and that it wouldn't always be them that were the subordinates in these things. It's Mm. not only the the Chinese, and, and as you say, everybody knew, and everybody knew his name, and everybody was pleased. But I also found Europeans and Americans who... Again, were aware of it and were impressed by it, and um, I know that there were certainly people who used Kevin uh, because of that uh, to, to give advice or to give an opinion. So I think it was very, very classy, really, and it still is, and he's still rena- you know, well known. Mm. He made, um, and for all the fuss that was made about him making that speech at Peking University, where he talked about being the, the real friend and not just the the Jung Yo, not the Pang the next um, high-state dinner that he was at, he was at the head table on the right-hand side of the, prime, uh, the Premier. Whatever they thought, they weren't that offended by it. You know, there was a lot of... Some of the papers played up here that Kevin had somehow, you know, shamed us all or something. Well, the Chinese didn't seem to think so, mm. really. And I was always very sorry that uh, Alexander Downer made such a poo-poo about him, him speaking Chinese. As if it was something big deal, it is big deal you know And I was sorry that Downer did it rather than holding him up as a model for kids,
0: you yeah. know as
1: a possibility and a model and a good thing and a thing we want. Mm. The attitude was, well you know what's it matter? We all speak a bit of French or something like that or you know yeah. And I thought that was very disappointing in terms of what, the where we need to be heading.
0: Okay Jane, so for, for people listening to the podcast who have long graduated from school, what would you recommend is the best way they get started or, or maybe take their Chinese language to the next level? What are the best ways to learn Chinese these days, do you think?
1: This is tough because... Uh Particularly if you're an adult or a you know, young young adult or middle aged working person, because the typical offering is that you get a book and a t-shirt and you just plod on through. I think there are much better ways to do it, but it unfortunately almost inevitably means you have to do this organising for yourself. Mm. You have to be very clear-eyed. One of the things is to know what do you want your Chinese for. Mm. You don't need to go back to book one or even book three if you're up to book three. You don't need to learn all the zoo animals and all the classroom furniture. If in fact what you really want to do is go to a meeting at which people are going to be discussing mining or architecture. Targeted language. Yeah. it's all Chinese, so you might as well read, the, read You might as well learn the language in your own area. Mm. But of course, you can't go into a bookshop and find a book that says that oh, you want to be an architect. You know, here are the colours and stones and building materials and you've got to find it yourself. And the first thing is you've got to decide, well, what is it I'd like to be able to do? And there may be more than one thing. You might want to be able to be competent at the sort of meeting and uh, greeting and banqueting stuff. There'd be one piece and there's this and there's that. And you'd like to be able to tell the um, IE how to do something or other. And so you, well, then you'll need to prioritise. Yeah. But I think if you can work out what it and do you want to be able to read and write or do you just want to be able to speak and understand Mm. also important. And then you need to get some content, you know, record a whole meeting, one whole meeting of the kind you want or get hold of some documents of the kind you want to read and then find somebody who will work with you on it Mm. three times a week for about 30 minutes that Chinese is very memory heavy. And it's like open-channel irrigation. The longer between times, the less it's going to be there at the end. So mm. you're better off doing three times ten minutes a week than, than just once half an hour. Yep. Because your forgetting rate is very high. Okay. So, you know, you, and you need all of this because you won't find a Chinese teacher, even a trained one, um, and that's one of the problems because they don't get trained to teach like this, who can help you. But you may be able to teach them to teach you if you know that much about what you want. Mm. And you go about it systematically. I think you see that this is much better because it, it's it's going to be long term, but you can it's like a long journey. You can get to stations in interim stations. You can say, right, well now I can read the minutes, or now I can't tell IE to do yeah. five things, or I can whatever it is, you know, understand when somebody's talking to me about these particular plans. Yeah. Now commercial classes like night classes, apart from the fact they drag and everybody's tired they tend to not be very good because adults tend to be away, they're on business, they're sick, they're busy, they don't come, they don't do their homework. So the pace is just incredibly slow, and it's just you know it's not very efficient for learning, and it mm. tends to be extremely boring to
0: yeah. And it's less it's less targeted to what you specifically. Mm. And and the again, they
1: or. they make it general, so you're ending up learning about cows and pigs and things, and you don't really want to do that. Now you could hire a teacher locally, or you can work online. Now they're, again, they're, if if you if you're prepared to train your teacher, there are lots of online tutors in China who will work with you and you can, you know, email a copy of the document that you want to learn to read well and to understand. And uh, the nice thing about that is you can do it anywhere. You can do it from your motel room if you're travelling or you can do it from home or you can do it at the office if you've mm. got a half hour. And you can do it any time of the week. You know, you know, it's got a tremendous time flexibility. Mm. And that often is is really helpful because that's the kind of thing that undoes people. You know, if it's meant to be every Tuesday, but then this happens and those people arrive and the international people and, and you discover your Tuesdays are just being shredded by external events. Mm. Well, if you've got this online thing, it doesn't matter because you can just do it on Wednesday or mm. do, it, do it in the morning and then do it lunchtime sometimes. So it, it's it got tremendous flexibility, but you do have to look around a bit, find a good one and then you would need to educate them to say, don't keep speaking to me in English. I don't want to get onto that. I just want to work on this bit first and if you educated them, you can actually do very well. It's all Chinese. I mean, you know, the, the grammar's there. I think it can be companionable if you can get a mate to do it with you, and that's good, cool. you know, and there's a bit of competition, there's a bit of help as well, so that's nice. Not a class, but maybe a person who works with you as well. Yep. And the other thing is you can get them to record stuff so that, it's, again, it's the thing that you want to learn, so because there isn't a book on your topic particularly. You may find something that's got something you want to do, that's great, but otherwise you could get them to record it. The other thing, there are lots and lots of apps um, for language learning which have, again, they they can feed in 10 characters or 20 vocab words or three different kinds of structures or Mm. something, and these machines just crank them out. They'll give you crossword puzzles, they'll give you exercises and matching, they'll give you speed writing, exercises. all kinds of things. Mm. All of it—the language that you've been learning. Mm. One of the problems, and a lot of those are early ones, pre-selected for you. And of course, they kept giving you vocab you hadn't learned in the first place. And
0: yeah.
1: Again, I think people tend to rush on a bit. You know, slow but sure and thorough. You'd be surprised. You know, if you really did three months or six months, you could mm. learn a lot of Chinese. Mm about your own area and you'll be sitting in a meeting and suddenly thinking I can understand all of that or there's just that one word you know you can learn that on the spot yeah and that that of course is very encouraging as well it's a you know the motivation end as well and it's it's so much more interesting to be reading about the stuff that you're actually involved with yeah Another thing, and a really critical thing for, for, for efficient learning, um, which people often don't know about, is that when you're practising speaking, and us suppose you're, you're, you're talking to somebody or you're learning your vocab or you're doing that, is to move. Now, I know it sounds funny, but it's, we know it from the brain that mm. if you walk while you're talking or you mm. use your hands to mark the phrasing and the stresses, it increases retention by about fourfold mm. and long-term retention at that. And this is, you know, that's a very useful dividend given yeah. when forgetting. So do you uh, mean using your hand for first tone, second well, tone? Well, you can do it for tones, but you, you don't put a tone on every word. It's right. only on the major stresses. Okay. And if you just walk, if you actually walk, you'll find you walk on the stresses anyway. That's, that's the way we're built. Okay. Um, but even if you're just moving your hand, literally tapping your arm, in time to as you're speaking, it's because where where that movement's coming from and language are actually the same sp- space in the brain. So you're actually doubling the in, the impression, so to speak. And the other thing is to learn pinyin very early and very well because you are dependent on this romanized form. Mm. Right now, some Chinese are a bit sort of oh, it's babies and that. Not babyish for us because we really are babies. Yeah. When you're being tonal and when you're being, you know, for characters, it's really just uh, critical that you be able to. If you do hear a word, that you can write it down, with its tone mark, which is integral to it. It's not, you know, sh with a fourth tone. It's simply sh, and that's it. It's not sh. It's sh. And you've got to learn to, to grapple with that, not putting it on, as it were, like a hat later on. It's, it's part of the actual syllable. It's really essential. Moving and, and having some real control of pinyin mm. will support your learning. I, I would say you, know, you work at that.
0: OK, well, thanks a lot for dropping by, Jane. Australia definitely has such a close engagement economically and socially with China these days. Um, and, and hopefully Australia can meet that engagement linguistically at some stage in the future.
1: I hope so too and Chinese is after all such a fantastic language and language learning is so good for mm. educating oneself anyway so that there are you know enormous dividends uh, in, in, uh, in, in taking it up and hanging in there and we've got such great opportunities now because we do have a lot of Chinese in our society mm. around us yeah great so thank you for yeah. inviting me thank you.
0: My thanks to Jane for her thoughts of Chinese language learning in Australia. And after our chat, Jane sent through some updated VCE, Chinese as a second language figures where there was a 12% drop in total candidates from 2015 to 2018. In 2015, there were 854 students down to 751 in 2018. Chief examiners estimate that among the 751 students last year, there were roughly 60 to 70 of a non-Chinese background which would represent a 50% drop in non-Chinese background second language candidates in four years. If you'd like to read more from Dr Jane Orton, we have listed some of her recent publications on this episode's show notes, available at acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts, where you'll also find previous episodes of our podcast. Thanks again to the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trades Australia-China Council for their support of the podcast. That's all for this week's episode. Until next time, zai jian.